Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 30, 1 Samuel chapters 17 and 18. Well, I said last week that the two books of Samuel, and especially where we are now, simply explode with God principles that that we learned about back in Torah. And how they're applied to the situations at hand. Now we're going to bump into and examine several of those principles today. And as we continue in 1 Samuel chapter 17, David has just slain the giant Philistine warrior Goliath. But as we discovered last week, Goliath didn't represent David's only battle. Saul, the illegitimate current king of Israel, has no intentions of giving up his throne just because God says the kingdom is no longer his. Because the Lord has anointed David as the new king, Nagid, actually, king king in waiting, conflict between the rightful king and the pretender is inevitable. Saul, the anti-king, displays for us the general characteristics or type of the anti-Christ. Now, I don't want to take this parallel too far. Saul was probably not an ancient appearance of the anti-Christ per se. But as the Apostle John tells us, the essence of the anti-king, anti-Christ is first and foremost as a spirit of evil. And there's no doubt in my mind that this spirit can be visualized as present and pervasive in Saul. And that spirit that was so dominant in Shaul's life is also present and active today. Just as it was in the Apostle John's time, even though the human being who will become the ultimate tool and fleshly container of that spirit is yet to come. 1 John 2.18 says this, Children, this is the last hour. You have heard that an anti-Messiah is coming. And in fact, many anti-Messiahs have arisen now which is how we know that this is the last hour. They went out from us, but they weren't part of us. For had they been part of us, they would have remained with us. He continues on in chapter 4, verse 1. Dear friends, don't trust every spirit. On the contrary, test the spirits to see whether they're from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Here's how you're to recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit which acknowledges that Yeshua the Messiah came as a human being is from God, and every spirit which does not acknowledge Yeshua is not from God. In fact, this is the spirit of the anti-Messiah. Now you've heard that he is coming. Well, he's here now. He's in the world already. See, John is speaking 
of the same pattern that we view here in 1 Samuel chapter 17. John is saying that those who manifest the spirit of the anti-Messiah were mingled in among the believers. And they appeared to be part of them, meaning part of the body of believers, at that time primarily Hebrews. There were several, perhaps many of them. But it turns out that while they looked and talked the part of being a believer, in reality, they weren't actually part of the body, or at least they weren't any longer as they gave up the Holy Spirit for another kind. They very likely had deceived their own minds into believing that they were indeed part of the body. They didn't at all see themselves as vessels of the spirit of the Antichrist. Now note how King Saul, by all outward appearances, was part of Israel. He was even their anointed and legitimate leader. Saul always talked about how he was leading God's kingdom that he fought the wars that were God's wars. He was present at sacrifices to make fine speeches to the people. He surrounded himself with priests. He used religious sounding words and phrases and tried to create and maintain an aura of personal piety and and, and loyalty to God. I have no doubt that King Saul continued to see himself as a legitimate part of God's kingdom, despite what Samuel had told him. But in reality, he was far from God. In spiritual reality, God had completely removed himself from Saul, never to return. Let me be very clear here. From a spiritual viewpoint... Saul was no longer part of Israel. He came from Israel, but he wasn't part of Israel, at least not anymore. Because by definition, being part of Israel wasn't only a matter of physical genealogy or race, it was spiritual. How could a person such as King Saul, call him, herself perhaps, an Israelite, a member of God's kingdom, Israel, and yet be completely devoid of God's presence. Answer, from a spiritual standpoint, he couldn't. And as always, the spiritual standpoint overrides the physical. Now this perverted pattern of King Saul is expounded upon by St. Paul over a thousand years later in Romans chapter 2, a passage we've all heard many times, but perhaps we thought that it was a brand new thing only for Paul's day and then henceforth. I want to quote it again because of its critical importance. Now take note that Paul is speaking to ethnic Jews here. He is talking to Jews 
about principles that affect all men, Jews and Gentiles. And thus, Jews, he's going to say, can't merely hold up their ethnicity as the sole proof of their membership in the kingdom of God. Romans 2, starting at verse 24. As it says in the Tanakh, For it is because of you that God's name is blasphemed by the Goyim, by the Gentiles. For circumcision is indeed of value if you do what Torah says. But if you're a transgressor of Torah, your circumcision has become for you uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the Torah, won't his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? Indeed, the man who is physically uncircumcised but obeys the Torah will stand on judgment will stand as a judgment on you who've had a brit milah circumcision and have Torah written out for you but violate it for the real Jew is not merely Jewish outwardly true circumcision is not only external and physical on the contrary the real Jew is one inwardly True circumcision is of the heart, spiritual, not literal, so that his praise comes not from other people, but from God. Powerful, powerful statement. In Paul's eyes, I think fairly to say in God's eyes as well, the ancient king Saul would not have been a real, true Israelite from the divine perspective because his circumcision his sign in the flesh of kingdom membership was strictly in the flesh and it contained none of the far more important spiritual element now with that in mind towards the end of last week I presented you with some food for thought. We're in the habit of thinking of the coming Antichrist, Anti-King, as a typical Gentile. Likely a white-skinned European type who is either very secular or so religiously tolerant as to adhere to no discernible faith whatsoever. But why would any modern Jew who was still waiting for their Jewish Messiah to come even remotely be enticed into looking to a Gentile as that Messiah? Conversely, why would a major portion of Judeo-Christian society, no matter how ignorant, accept an avowed atheist or agnostic as the possible savior of the world, or even as God himself. Neither of those cases is likely at all. It doesn't even make any sense. On a physical level, physical level, King Saul, of course, had Hebrew blood. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. He held himself up as a member in good standing of God's kingdom people. 
even though from a spiritual level, God had abandoned him. Okay? The Israelites were generally none the wiser, except perhaps for a handful of Saul's closest advisors. In fact, as of this point in 1 Samuel, David was in the dark as to Saul's spiritual position before God. He didn't know. As far as he knew, Saul was still the legitimate king. There's no indication that David had any clue that he had already been consecrated as Israel's next king. David didn't know what that anointing by Samuel was really all about. Therefore, using this as a pattern for the present and the future, it's my speculation that the coming Antichrist must somehow appear to be sufficiently both Hebrew and Christian in order for him to fool the world and to set off a series of prophesied events. He will be very much like King Saul was. What you see is definitely not what you're getting. So it's all the more important that we pay careful attention to the various evolving aspect aspects of, of, of Saul and David's relationship. As in many respects, this is going to be repeated and possibly might even give us an early indicator of who the coming Antichrist is. We, as readers looking back upon these ancient historical events in the book of Samuel, we are given insights by the narrator that no one but Samuel had knowledge of at this point. Most of the Hebrew people didn't know that God had abandoned Saul, chosen David, used Goliath as an ultimately doomed symbol of paganism and indomitability, and that he was going to elevate David and frustrate Saul in the process. They didn't know, none of them knew, that this was all about deliverance and redemption. The chief characteristic, you see, of God's providential involvement in human history is that it goes undetectable as events occur. Saul and David are participants in events far bigger than themselves. And like Job, they have no inkling of the pivotal roles they are playing in an invisible cosmic spiritual confrontation. They are merely living their lives day by day and attending to matters at hand in ways that seem practical and pragmatic to their minds. Let's read and discuss the last uh, few verses of 1 Samuel chapter 17. Turn your Bibles to page uh, 318 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. 1 Samuel 17, we're going to start reading at verse 54. David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem.
But he put the armor of the Philistine in his tent. And when Saul saw David go out to fight the Philistine, he said to Abner, the army's commander, Abner, whose son is this boy? By your life, O king, Abner replied, I don't know. And the king said, well, find out whose son this boy is. And as David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him to Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul asked him, Young man, whose son are you? And David answered, I'm the son of your servant, Yeshai, Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Someone at the end of the last lesson said, started to ask questions about this. All right, and I mentioned I, we'd discuss it this week, so here we go. Verse 54 speaks of David taking Goliath's severed head to Jerusalem. There are a few things to understand here. <clears throat> First, is that while that stone that flew at lightning speed from David's sling struck a fatal blow to Goliath, it didn't kill him immediately. Goliath was indeed mortally wounded as he lay there on the ground, face down before David, but he wasn't dead yet. Verse 51 explains that because David didn't carry a sword, he picked up Goliath's and he beheaded him with his own sword. It was only then that Goliath was finally killed. Second, why would David take Goliath's head to Jerusalem? There's much debate on this. Some scholars say that this is immediately a problem and that Jerusalem was not even in existence at this time. And so it can only be that some extraneous verses were added at a much later date and that although there was a walled city at that spot occupied by the Jebusites, that it certainly was not called Jerusalem, but rather Jebus. Thus the name of the inhabitants of that city, the Jebusites. Right? And what would possibly be the purpose, no matter who ruled that city, or what name it went by, by taking Goliath's head there? Now I can't give you definitive answers to this question, but I, I'm going to give you some opinions held by respected scholars. First of all, there is more and more evidence that Jebus was indeed a walled city inhabited by some Canaanites who were referred to as Jebusites and that immediately outside of the walls of that city as a kind of a suburb was a little place called Jerusalem. Okay? And that David went there to that Hebrew suburb with the head to show the residents that Goliath had been defeated. Why that was so important, we don't know. Further, that the name of the suburb called Jerusalem eventually got transferred to the walled city of Jebus after David captured it and made it his capital. We'll read all about that in the coming chapters. Now a second view is that Jebus was at that time actually a city of mixed nationalities. Some Israelites and some Canaanites living in that city side by side. And that the Canaanites tended to refer to the city by its older Canaanite name, Jebus, and that the Israelites tended to refer to it with its newer Hebrew name, Yerushalayim. The third 
is that the use of the name Jerusalem is an anachronism. In other words, as is rather common in the Bible and many history books, the most modern name is used to describe an ancient place that originally went by another name. The old name had become so out of use and forgotten that to use it meant that the listeners or readers would have no idea what place was being referred to. It was common that over the centuries languages would change or that a city occupied by one people would be taken over by another people who used a different language. So either the place name would be roughly phoneticized to the new language, and boy, we see a lot of that in Israel. All right. Or an entire new name would be assigned to the place by the new residents in their new language. So the new name was used even if, when the story took place, it went by an entirely different name. You will find this throughout the Bible. Now while the issue of David bringing Goliath's head to Jerusalem is interesting, but hardly earth-shattering, now comes the confusing matter of the conversation between Saul and Abner and David. This conversation takes place immediately following David's slaying of Goliath. And the confusing issue is, at least at first glance, Saul doesn't seem to recognize David. And since David has been given the honored title of armor bearer, who's been acting as Saul's official court musician, how can it be that Saul is oblivious to David's identity? Since the king apparently doesn't recognize this victorious shepherd boy, Saul asks his top general about him. And Abner says he knows exactly zero about this kid. So finally the king summons David and asks, Whose son are you? Now the usual take on this is that we have at least two different and somewhat conflicting stories combined here. And so we wind up with a corrupted and illogical narrative. Or that someone has added this conversation at a much later date and that they weren't clever enough to notice that what they added contradicted what was said earlier. Another rather standard opinion, kind of a fallback position, is that King Saul was becoming more and more mentally disabled. And so he couldn't remember who David was, even though he had him in the palace playing the lyre on a regular basis. Well, to me, this whole thing is a tempest in a teapot. Okay, It's not a case, it's, it's the case rather of not seeing the forest because of the trees. Here's the key. Saul doesn't ask David who he is. He asks who his father is. Whose son are you? This is a matter of who David's father is and it connects perfectly to this story when we just look back to verse 25 where it says, the soldiers of Israel said to each other, you saw that man who just came up? 
referring to the Goliath, he's come to challenge Israel. And to whoever kills him, the king will give a rich reward. He'll also give him his daughter, and he'll exempt his father's family from all service and taxes in Israel. The promised prize to the champion of Israel who confronted and killed Goliath was, first, a rich reward, reward, meaning money. Second, one of the king's daughters in marriage, thereby officially making that champion part of the ruling family. And third, that the champion's father's family would be exempt from taxes and service to Israel. The supposedly confusing conversation was about Saul addressing the third part of his offer. In order to reward David's family, he obviously had to know who David's father was. Recall that it was not Saul who found David to be his court musician. It was one of his court advisors. They they merely brought David's name to the king. The king agreed, he summoned him. Indeed, in chapter 16, we have Saul sending to Jesse for this his shepherd son. But that in no way meant that Saul personally knew of Jesse or personally even sent for him. I mean, Saul would have had one of his royal cabinet handle such a a, a small matter, a message like this, merely, merely putting his stamp of authority on it. I mean, it's, it's not unlike someone saying, they got an invitation from our president to attend a state function. It's a figure of speech, really. Okay? There's no way that our president personally did any more than to delegate the task of compiling a list and then somebody contacting the invitees. The office person would attend to the entire function, but they did it in the name and the authority of the president. Same thing was going on here. Now, as his military general, Abner dealt with soldiers, not court musicians. He wasn't part of the group who handled the issue of summoning David to come and play music for the king. So Abner spoke truthfully. He had no knowledge about the family of this giant killer. Nowhere in these passages is David ever asked his name. Three times the question is asked, Whose son are you? And indeed, David doesn't answer with his own name, but rather with his father's name. Because that's the proper response to Saul's question. Further in the next chapter, we're going to see Saul deal with the second part of the promised prize for the killer of Goliath, one of the king's daughters is to be given as the victor's wife. So this isn't really all that challenging. Let's move on to chapter 18. Chapter 18. By the time David had finished speaking to Saul, Jonathan found himself inwardly drawn by David's character, so that Jonathan loved him as he did himself. And that day Shaul took David into a service and wouldn't let him go home to his father's house anymore. 
Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as he did himself. Jonathan removed the cloak he was wearing. He gave it to David, his armor too, including his sword and bow and belt. David would go out, and no matter where Saul sent him, he was successful. Saul put him in charge of the fighting men. All the people thought it was good, and so did Saul's servants. And as David and the others were returning from the slaughter of the Philistines, the women came out of all the cities of Israel to meet King Saul singing and dancing joyfully with tambourines and three-stringed instruments, and in their merrymaking, the women would sing, Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. Saul became very angry, because this song displeased him. And he said, they give David credit for tens of thousands, they only give me credit for thousands. Now all he lacks is the kingdom. And from that day on, Saul viewed David with suspicion. The following day, an evil spirit from God came powerfully over Saul so that he fell into a frenzy in the house. David was there, playing his lyres on other occasions. This time, Saul had a spear in his hand and he threw that spear thinking, I'll pin David to the wall. But David dodged out of the way twice. Saul became afraid of David because Adonai was with him. He had left Saul. Therefore Saul put him at a distance from himself by making him commander over a thousand. His goings and comings became public knowledge. David had great success in all of his ways. Adonai was with him. When Saul saw how very successful he was, he became afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because they knew about all of his campaigns. Shaul said to David, Here is my older daughter Meroth. I will give her to you as your wife. Only continue displaying your courage for me and fight Adonai's battles. Shaul was thinking, I don't dare touch him. So let the Philistines do away with him. David's response to Saul was, Who am I that I should become the king's son-in-law? I don't have any kind of a life. And my father's family has no rank in Israel. However, when it was time for Merav, Shaul's daughter, to be given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Mecholati, as his wife. But Michal, Shaul's daughter, fell in love with David. They told Saul, and it pleased him. And Saul said, I'll give her to him so that she can entrap him. And the Philistines can do away with him. So Saul said to David, Today you will become my son-in-law through this second daughter. Saul ordered his servants to speak privately with David and say, Look, the king is pleased with you, and all his servants like you, so become the king's son-in-law. Saul's servants said this to David, but David replied, Do you think that being the king's son-in-law is something to be treated so casually given that I'm a poor man without social standing? Saul's servants reported back to him how David had responded. And Saul said, Here's what you're to say to David. The king doesn't want any dowry. He wants a hundred foreskins of the Philistines so that he can have vengeance on the king's enemies. For Shaul was hoping to have David killed by the Philistines. 
Well, when his servant said these words to David, it pleased David to become the king's son-in-law. Even before the time for him to be married, David got up and set out, he and his men, and they killed 200 men of the Philistines. He brought their foreskins and gave all of them to the king in order to become the king's son-in-law. Then Saul gave him Michal, his daughter, as his wife. Saul saw and understood that Adonai was with David and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him. This only made Shaul more afraid of David, so that Shaul became David's enemy for the rest of his life. The leaders of the Philistines would attack, but whenever they attacked, David was more successful than any of Saul's servants, so that David acquired a great reputation. Please notice that the chapter markers are poorly chosen and thus gives the timing of these events kind of a wrong sense to them. Okay? That is, it's as though some time passed between the end of chapter 17 and the beginning of chapter 18. It would have been a lot more accurate and appropriate to have chapter 18 begin at what is currently marked as chapter 17, verse 55. Okay, because the first words of chapter 18 refer directly back to the conversation between David, Saul, and Abner about the identity of David's father. So chapter 18, as currently constituted, begins by saying, by the time David had finished speaking to Saul, which was about all about his father, okay, see, this was merely the ending of that past conversation. So no time's passed. This, the meeting immediately following Goliath's defeat is ongoing now here to begin chapter 18. Well, Yohanan, Saul's eldest son, found himself awestruck by David's character and abilities and therefore greatly desired to be his close friend. Now verse 1 says that Jonathan loved David as he loved himself. In fact, we're going to find a number of occasions whereby we're informed that Jonathan loved David as he loved himself. Now, I said this last week, but it bears repeating. Some modern liberal scholars and pastors have regularly taken this situation to indicate a homosexual love affair between David and Jonathan. This is ridiculous on its face. It's political correctness at its worst. Okay. First of all, homosexuality is dealt with over and over in both the Old and New Testaments, and it's condemned on the highest level by the Father. Second, the use of the term love, ahab, here carries a sort of political, even a mystical context to it. Or even better, it denotes a sense of partisanship or, or, or dedication or loyalty. It has nothing to do with erotic affections. Notice that the verse even explains that the kind of love that Jonathan had for David was the same kind that Jonathan had for himself. The proper healthy kind that we're all supposed to exhibit. Not even in the twisted sexual perversions of today 
do we think in terms of a person having an erotic sexual affection for one's own self? Okay. Rather, this is a fundamental reference to a God principle that we're all familiar with. Love your neighbor as yourself. And the meaning of this core biblical principle is certainly not that the Lord instructs His people to go have sexually intimate relations with our neighbors. Rather, this is a love of acceptance and devotion and doing. The first place we actually see this commandment concerning love is in the Torah, in the book of Leviticus. And then it's going to be repeated seven more times throughout the Bible. Leviticus 19.18 Don't take vengeance or bear a grudge against any of your people. Rather, love your neighbor as yourself. I am Adonai. Notice something key. The context of this verse in Leviticus is about the actions that we take. It says that rather than take the action of vengeance against people because of a grudge, take actions of goodness for those you know, just as you automatically take actions of goodness on your own behalf. This isn't about so much about emotions or how one feels about people, but the two are obviously connected. The complete Jewish Bible, which employs what scholars call a dynamic translation, doesn't handle this first verse very well, by the way. And so the impact of it is kind of muffled. See, what this first verse of chapter 18 says in Hebrew is that Yohanatan's nefesh became knitted together with David's Nefesh, so that Jonathan's Jonathan loved David as his own Nefesh, or Jonathan's soul became so knitted and united with David's soul that Jonathan loved David as much as he loved his own soul. That's literal. This is speaking of a mysterious connection and unity on a spiritual level. It's a meeting of the mind and the heart based on a commonly held set of holy principles and beliefs and it all rested on trusting God. It has nothing to do with a mere meeting or connection of the flesh. It's a very early example of exactly the type of spiritual or soul-ish unification that the members of God's church are to have in concert with our Messiah. It's a similar kind of inexplicable unity that the church doctrine of the Trinity of God tries to demonstrate. It is called Echad, Echad, oneness in the Torah and in the Tanakh. The body of Messiah is commanded to emulate the unity and the oneness that is the Godhead. 
Thus, even as God manifests His unity in at least three entities, so the church is also one unity, but manifests itself in many entities, millions of believers. Listen to Ephesians 4, starting at 4.1. Therefore I, the prisoner united with the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Always be humble, gentle, gentle, patient, bearing with one another in love, and making every effort to preserve the unity that the Spirit gives through the binding power of Shalom. There is one body and one spirit. Just as when you were called, you were called to one hope. There is one Lord, one trust, one immersion, one God, the Father of all, who rules over all, works through all, is in all. This is the nature of the love the believers are to have for one another. It is the kind of bond of love that David and Jonathan formed. It is a kind that is not possible without God as the glue that both initially binds it together and then keeps it together. Yes, all this is in just the first verse of this chapter. In verse 2, Comparison and a contrast is established in the way that Jonathan behaves towards David versus the way that Saul behaves towards David. And of course this behavior is a reflection of the condition of the souls of each party. We're told that King Saul on that day, the same day that David killed Goliath, took David into his service. He wouldn't let him return home to his family. On the other hand, Jonathan made a covenant of friendship with David and he sealed it by giving to David his cloak, his armor, and his weapons. Saul took. Jonathan gave. And in the next several verses we're going to see a list of things that Saul took. Now as much as is taken place here in the spiritual sphere what is happening simultaneously in the earthly sphere is but what Samuel told Israel was going to happen once the administration of judges was prematurely replaced with an administration of kings turn your Bibles back just a few pages to 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8. We're going to read verses 10 through 18 as a reminder. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 10. Shmuel reported everything Adonai had said to the people asking him for a king. And he said, Here's the kind of rulings your king will make. 
He will draft your sons and assign them to the care of his chariots to be his horsemen and be his bodyguards running ahead of his chariots. He will appoint them to serve him as officers in charge of a thousand or of fifty plowing his fields, gathering his harvest, making his weapons and equipment for his chariots. He'll take your daughters and have them be perfume makers and cooks and bakers. He'll expropriate your fields and vineyards and olive groves, the very best of them. He'll hand them over to his servants. He'll take the 10% tax of your crops and vineyards and give it to his officers and servants. He will take your male and female servants, your best young men and your donkeys and make them work for them. He'll take the 10% of your flocks and you'll become his servants. And when that happens, you'll cry out on account of your king, whom you yourselves chose. But when that happens, Adonai will not answer you. The Lord had warned the leaders of Israel through Samuel, that this king that they chose would be a taker. God's judges weren't takers. They were deliverers. So what was predicted is now happening. And it's happening to David, who was practically legally kidnapped from his family to serve Saul. You see, and and there was no ruckus over this. Because everyone understood that in the world as it was then, this is the way of kings and kingdoms. No one has a choice in the matter. Let me point out something else. We'll close with this. In verse 3 it is said that the reason that Jonathan made this covenant with David is because he loved him. This was not a contract for services rendered. No self-serving political alliance was formed and maintained. There was no financial gain. This was no business venture. It wasn't a mutual protection treaty. All of these were indeed the typical reasons for forming a covenant in that era. But this one we're told, was done for one reason, love. Jonathan was of the royal family, so he was the one that had to offer it. Lowly David, a commoner, couldn't offer a covenant to the king's family. This is yet another demonstration of the nature of the several covenants that God made with men. The created can't come to the creator with an offer of a covenant. Man could not come to God with the offer of a covenant. God had to come to man. Whether it was the covenant of Noah, not to destroy the world by flood again, the covenant with Abraham to establish a set-apart people and give them an inheritance of divine blessing, land, and kingdom that would someday benefit the whole world, or the covenant with Moses to give the redeemed people of Israel a manual for living and a means to maintain harmony with God, the reasons for the covenants was always God's love for the lesser beings. God gains nothing. 
And he gave up something. His son. Jonathan gained nothing by making this covenant with David. It was for the sake of a spiritual kind of of love that he sought this bond. Jonathan, as we're going to find out, would eventually give up his right to succeed Saul. It is said that the new covenant in Christ's blood is a covenant of love. True enough. But the reality is that all of the ancient covenants between God and mankind, between God and Israel, were covenants of love. And here we have Jonathan covenanting with David in exactly that same mold. And we have the royalty giving his personal covering and protection to the lesser mortal as a free gift. Rather than when in earthly terms one would expect the lesser being to be obligated to give a gift to the higher being for the offering of that covenant. We're going to resume this study next time.